0: Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast, where we untangle market- Monetary Metals is unlocking the productivity of gold, but the Fed has unlocked the undead to feast on our economy. So we're dedicating the entire month of October to discuss zombies. Our fearless leader, Keith, will demystify the Federal Reserve's Frankensteins with top zombie experts from around the globe. Will zombies take over our economy? Does anyone at the central bank even have a brain to feast on? Will Powell have what it takes to defeat the zombie horde, or is it all over but the show? Your only hope to find out is here on the Gold Exchange Podcast. <laughs> Welcome back to the Gold Exchange Podcast. We are here in New Orleans at the New Orleans Investment Conference. I'm joined as always by founder and CEO of Monetary Metals, Keith Weiner. We are of course delighted by board member Jim Brown, Hard Money Jim, he's on Substack, and always a pleasure to have. Jim, welcome back. Thank you. Jim, so let's kind of dive right in. We are now in kind of a rising moment of the interest rate. The Fed has said we plan to raise rates even if the UN says don't do it, if the rest of the world says don't do it. Uh, The rates are rising. So let's talk about that for a little bit. Do you see in 2022, not 2023, but 2022, that rate hikes will have to be abandoned and that the Fed will pivot? Or do you think they really have the resolve to do it?
1: 2022 is uh, winding to a close pretty quickly. And uh, Jay Powell has been very explicit and very firm. And he's been a man of his word so far. He's going to raise rates. And I think, you know, why is that? Because he's got the worst consumer price increases, what he calls inflation, not what I call inflation, but what he calls it, what they call inflation, in 40 years. And this is political, this is politically toxic. Mm. You cannot when he's raised rates before, uh, he has not had to do it in this kind of an environment. Uh, And but he also hasn't had, you know, this kind of a strong labor market. He's going to raise rates until he breaks the labor market. I think it's kind of what he's promised to do. He's talked about the strong labor market, implying that there are trade-offs that he can trade off a few percentage uh, unemployment for, you know, a reduction to CPI back to his magic two percent. I mean, I think he'll do it. Unless something really awful breaks, and even then, uh, it'll take a lot to uh, dissuade him. I think he's—they're serious because consumer price inflation is serious for the first time in 40 years. So right. I don't feel he—I don't feel he thinks he has much choice. You notice uh, he's used the same words that uh, Paul Volcker used sorry. in his book. He's channeled Volker. He's he's quite. Yeah, he sees himself as a Volker.
2: Market. Yeah. And, um, of course, we're in a completely different economic. So
1: what's that? What was the name of Volker's book? Keeping at it, I think.
2: And that's right. Think the beatings have to. You have to keep, keep it to beatings keeping, until the morale improves. At,
1: I think. I think that was Volker's book. And uh, Jay Powell keeps saying, "We're going to keep at it. We're going to keep at it." He's said this numerous. That's no accident. I don't think he's. And I and I think. The market uh, has continually underestimated his commitment to doing this. By the way, I'm not saying that this commitment is great or noble or anything like that. (laughs) I'm not saying that. But I am saying that this is the course he's on. And have you noticed also that the other Fed governors seem to follow? They are at first, months ago, they were kind of tepid, they were lukewarm, but now they are all. Falling into line, falling into line. He has got them on his train. So there's a lot of momentum to keep interest rates rising. Uh, you know, I look at the periodic uh, Fed uh, funds futures and the probabilities that are calculated for the next Fed's fund, Fed funds hike. Right now, the probability of 75 basis point hike next time is, I think, it's above 75 percent. Last time I looked, it's very high. I, 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 mean, I, I think they're going to keep
2: hiking.
0: Yeah, I think the term is the beatings will continue until morale <laughs> improves, and clearly the beatings are continuing. Uh, clearly cl-
2: cl- morale is not improving.
0: Yeah, clearly uh, morale so is. So you got to,
2: got to keep whipping
0: them.
1: Jay would say the labor market's strong. You know, three and a half percent unemployment or whatever it is. Uh, even though job openings are slowing down, you got
2: distant early warnings of a, of a worse market. But uh, he's going to trade off. Uh, I've got, I've got two comments about that. And one is in the, you know, early stage high growth companies, they've been told by their investors, you should assume you're not getting any more money, so cut the burn until you get to cash flow positive. But they've been, you know, and so there have been some layoffs, but not enough to really affect yeah. the bigger statistics yet. But the other thing I read, which I thought was interesting, is that you know there's been a lot of these cycles over the decades, and most of the employers have kind of learned you don't want to react by laying off too many people too fast. A lot of companies laid off too many people uh, in COVID and regretted it because you can't bring the workforce back. Again. Yeah. They move on and, you know, or they're pissed off and, the, and, you know, they don't return. And So everyone's like, well, as soon as there's going to be a pivot, things are going to turn and we want to be prepared for that. And so if this is a game of chicken between the guy who's administering the beatings and the person whose morale you know, is supposed to improve, but isn't really that bad and they have to make it worse first. It's kind of a funny psychology as they stare each other down. Of course, in the end, assuming they persist on their rate hikes, there'll have to be a lot of layoffs because a lot of productive enterprise will be rendered sub-marginal at those higher rates. I mean, that's the whole concept of zombie and this being zombie month here at Monetary Metals. Oh, that, um, yeah. where, uh, the Somebody, I don't know if it was you that produced the video of like something's gone wrong at Monetary Metals and it shows the logo and then it like distorts and it the scream and Dracula and.
0: Yeah, we're going to have it as our intro here. Everyone will get uh, to see it.
2: And, um, you know, this idea that, uh, you know, there are companies that even at 0% interest rates um, couldn't pay their uh, interest expense out of their net profits. Right. And then you start hiking interest rates, not only do they go farther under the margin, but a lot of companies that had not been zombies, right. when you raise the margin, suddenly they, they find become they're, zombies. They're, they're under that new line, yeah. and then as those companies lay off, then that decreases spending, and more companies are dragged in. And then when these companies go out of business, all of their vendors and suppliers suddenly have you know less revenue, and it's, it's a it's a vicious spiral. That um,
1: so I I wonder what the uh, you know uh, Fed is going to do because. Numbers I've seen indicate, and I haven't seen them updated in a long time, but at one time I saw numbers that said something like 17% of the companies, i was shocked it was this high, in the S&P 500 were in this category, that they actually were at yes. zero profit at current, low, at current rock bottom
2: interest rates. And, and, so and something like 20% of all corporate debt out there, according to the Bank for International Settlements, not like yeah. conspiracycentral.com, the ones, com, right, right. The but ones, the Bank for International Settlements, 20%. Yeah, And, and this was before. Yeah, and they're
1: the ones that have the best, or the, the most widely held, I guess, uh, definition of a zombie. They have a specific right. Right. definition. A tight definition.
2: Okay. It's actually stricter. So it's when, when um, net profits are less than interest expense, okay. it's kind of the basic concept of it. But it's stricter than that and tighter than that. It ha- that condition has to apply for, was it, two years or something? Yeah. And it can't be one of those, like Tesla, you could argue, was an open-ended company situation. Yeah. We could have explosive growth to the upside. So they're trying to exclude that. Right. They're trying to say, like, these are the hopeless basket cases. Yep. That they're losing money, net of interest expenses, right. and have no real, you know, and then they keep a statistic of how many zombies get out of zombie status which is, you know, very small. Yeah. Yeah. And de- declining. and not obviously as interest those rates are, are rising. La- those
1: are the Lazarus zombies that kind of rise <laughs> up. Again, right. Right. So this is the question I have. There's so many of these that you would think that this makes the economy extremely fragile, that you just raise interest rates a little bit and all these dominoes start falling. And maybe that's the breakage that, um, you know, that happens that, causes the Fed to pivot. But then, I read a really good book recently called The Fed Unbound by a, 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 a lawyer from Colombia named Lev Menem. Very insightful book. Don't agree with his uh, position on you know, uh, how monetary policy should work and how the Fed should work and all that. But he's, he's got his facts straight. and He's got his monetary history good, as, as far as I can tell. Well, what he points out is, that the Fed has become so activist and into areas that it has never done before. It used to be just the lender of last resort. Now it's the lender of first resort. And you saw this in the pandemic. They extended loans and bought bonds directly of all kinds of companies that they would corporate never bonds. Have. corporate bonds, not just treasury not bonds, not just corporate and municipals that they had. Uh, they have. They're authorized to buy municipals, but they have rarely exercised that authority. Did you know that 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 uh, they bought bonds of Apple. The Fed bought bonds of Apple. Now, that's a good credit of at and which is not a great credit, but it's triple, triple B, of a whole bunch of other big-name uh, corporations. And why did they do this? They did it to show that they're ready to step in and prop up the market. They didn't buy enough to actually change the fortunes of the companies, but they did it to signal. So here's my question with that big lead-up. When we start to see zombies fall, what about the theory that the Fed will let some of the zombies die, and you know die their final death, but if it's a really important company, they'll intervene directly to that company and save that company. That way, they don't have to necessarily unleash all their monetary uh, loosening power into the whole economy. But as an example, not that it's a zombie, but I guarantee you the Fed's not going to let American Airlines fail. They're not going to let American Airlines even go bankrupt. It wouldn't, it it go, wouldn't but, come
2: to the Fed. I was going to say Congress and the fiscal policy will declare American Airlines to be a national treasure or whatever true. term they want to use. True, true, but the they'll f- subsidize them directly but before the Fed, it even gets to the Fed. But
1: the Fed backstops it. Here's what here's what's so interesting to me about this about the pandemic. The Fed put or the they did this special legislation, where the Treasury put up about 10 percent of the money. They created these special purpose vehicles, and then the Treasury loaned them the rest of the money, and the Fed backstopped the, those loans. So they really show up as federal spending. They're actually Fed-sponsored mm-hmm. loans, and you could get new money, brand new money, to these companies and save them without a TARP-type bailout, which was tax money. Because TARP, remember bail out the banks at seven, that was tax money that did that.
2: Now you make an interesting point that um, there's a whole book on Federal Reserve accounting practices which are not the same as generally accepted accounting practices. Right. <laughs> and they can have all <laughs> kinds, I mean basically, you know, it's operating on the subjectivist theory that if you write something different in your financial statements, then that dictates the reality and that becomes true because you wrote it. I you mean take a boss. It's a deferred, I forget what they call it, but there's like a postponed gain or deferred dean or something like that like when what the fed doesn't have to worry about being insolvent though right not as long as people accept the fact that you know they can i i think they do i think that two things matter well ultimately one thing i was going to say when assets are less than liabilities i think that actually matters and people have said why hasn't all the fed money printing caused the hyperinflation that everybody or not everybody a lot of people have been predicting for decades as long as they're and I call it borrowing, not money printing, as long as they're borrowing to finance assets that are money good, there's no problem and no particular limit either. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of problems, but not uh, the right. hyperinflation problem. But, yeah. um, but the other is when, um, uh, it, you know, net interest margin or interest revenues minus interest expense, when that goes negative, now the Fed is printing not to buy assets that are money good, but to simply feed a negative cash flow, mm. that's your death spiral that's your Weimar Germany spiral. Mm-hmm. And you know it starts out slow, but it's an exponential trend, and it will you know, spiral faster and faster, it'll get away from them, you know in the end. Um, and um, now, with all the interest rate hikes, you know, two things are happening. One is, because most of their funding is very short-term funding, there's trillions of dollars of um, reserves held at the Fed, which is the Fed's short-term funding which the interest rate on that goes up immediately every time the Fed hikes rates. right? Um, but the, the average duration of the Fed's portfolio of assets is, last time I had looked, 12 and a half years. So the interest rate the Fed is getting on its portfolio, mean, some of it rolls over and it rolls at higher rates, but most of that stuff doesn't really change very quickly. And so um, they're not getting higher revenues. However, the longer the duration of the asset, the more sensitive it is to interest rates. The Fed is now Taken a huge, at least on a mark-to-market basis, although they don't have to mark it to market. Right. of course, um, but the actual value of that portfolio has gone down um, while the liability remains hard and the cash flow is negative. That's gonna matter at some point. I was gonna say, talking about the economy being so sensitive, you hike rates a little bit and you wipe out half the economy. In my theory of interest and prices, I talk about that interest rates fall, there's both means um, and motive to lever up. You have to borrow more and more because you're getting smaller spread and that everything becomes brittle. And I had a picture of one of those, I don't know if if viewers would be familiar with Yadro. It's this fancy high-end porcelain figurines and artwork. So um, they have, you know, most people have like the little, um, you know, the little ones, like a little figure. They make some big elaborate ones and they have this like Chinese dragon. The thing's like this big and it has, you know, the forked tongue and the tail that's this long thing. Anyway, it's very thin and very brittle. And it's like, it just looks like one little tink and you'd break off pieces. <laughs> and I was like, this was what, yeah. this is what firms and ultimately the economy become after a long period of falling interest. That's where we're at, you know, if there was a map, you are here, right? So, are, are, you know, can they do this and how much damage are they going to cause? And it's a real political question Because, you know, what some of the Fed people, now some of those Fed people are not in the Fed anymore, but the Dick Fishers and the Ben Bernanke's, they're like, we learned our lesson. You can't selectively, um, you know, uh, allow Lehman Brothers (laughs) to fail while uh, uh, saving Merrill Lynch and Countrywide, or at least arranging for them to be acquired. That, you know, we had to basically save everybody and not allow the failures. But some of those people are gone and there's a new crew in there. Do they remember that lesson? Is that even the right lesson? It's a whole yeah. different story. Are they going to allow selective failures? If it's American Airlines, you don't allow it. Yeah. But if it's um, uh, Harris Casino, I don't know if that's as big as American Airlines, but maybe MGM Grand might be, oh, that's a casino. Let those the, guys fail because that's is, a vice. The
1: thing is, the casinos and the betting sites, they're going to do great. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's right, the (laughs) so called buy stock did well. That's what you probably
1: should invest in, you know? But they're all
2: over leveraged. It's not that people stop gambling, it's that um, they're over leveraged, and I'm sure that's the same thing short term liabilities, that their costs are going up. But as people get stressed and unemployed, they can't gamble as much. And so, um, anyways, the point is. I I,
1: I, I don't know if there's any zombies in these systemically important non financial companies. Okay, financial companies, oh yeah. They're not going to let a financial, they're going to try not to let a, you know, a a systemic financial failure happen again. But uh, what I'm really interested in is what if, um, I don't know, just American Airlines keeps coming to mind, but what about a systemically important industrial company? Or several that are on the ropes due to a combination of higher interest rates and, say, I don't know the war in Ukraine, uh, or you know, some something that happens. What what will they do? I think they're going to step in and become more and more the economic central planners that they aspire to be. And they yeah, will absolutely. purchase bonds. They will finance. They will loan at low rates
2: and. Uh, they look at the the very curious thing about all this allegedly breaking speed of demand and higher interest rates, the automakers, you know, as of um, last week, the last time I saw a TV commercial, are still offering 0% for 72 months <laughs> to buy a car. Now that was the subsidy that cost the automakers a pretty penny even before interest rates were going up. Now at the current place that we're at, that the cost of that subsidy has increased pretty, you know, pretty drastically, yeah. right? Yeah. The fact that they're still doing it, right? So if you're an automaker, you have to perform this calculation. Like, okay, if we do the subsidy, we know how much it's going to cost us per car. And that's pretty straightforward. You just need a calculator, right, to know that. Our cost of borrow is 6%. We're giving money at 0% times this value, right? That's what the cost is. But then the other thing is, what, what's the sales volume we get if we do offer the subsidy? What would be the sales volume if we said, no, you have to pay the market rate of interest? Obviously, it would be a lot lower. Yep. And I argue it would be so much lower that um, essentially you have to start writing down the plant itself because it's so underutilized where you have to close some plants to consolidate that um, when you're in a capital intensive business, you'd actually rather operate at a small loss than shut it down. And of course, once you shut it down, it's all written off. And then to restart six or 12 months later, could be impossible. No, you could get, get along
1: on. on the used car fleet in this country
2: for a long time if you really had to, right? Right. So, so if you're Ford <laughs> and you close a plant, you're not reopening it. It's done. The workers move on. Um, so they'd rather keep it open, even even. Basically, that's also another form of zombie. Even if Ford Corporation still generates a nominal profit, um, that's still kind of a zombie-ish activity. Yeah. That there's no demand for the cars except at zero interest rates.
1: Okay, so what about the opposite of that? What businesses will never be zombies? Cannot be zombies? Are there any?
0: Anything that's immune to this kind of zombification process? I was thinking about the Fed, I was yeah. thinking about the US government. I mean, like, let's say our interest rates rise. I mean, this is now all hypothetical, but if our interest rates rise to a point and our debt is now at 30 trillion and obviously doubling, it seems, every eight years, is there going to be a point where high enough interest rates would zombify the US economy to the point where? Our U.S. debt is just almost unpayable at the interest expense.
1: Yeah. So uh, when interest expense sort of approaches the, uh, starts to eat up a big portion of the of the tax uh, revenue, how do you how do you fund how do you and how do you keep borrowing? It's, well,
0: that's that spiral you were so, kind of mentioning. Keith. So what I sure.
1: what I suspect will happen there is, and I don't know how this relates to. Uh, you know a company that's zombie proof what I suspect happens there is that interest rate manipulation starts to take place and you get this you get this uh, so sort of what some people call financial repression and that uh, the government the Fed in cahoots with the Fed legislatively they'll start mandating that people own treasuries at a certain price they start mandating that banks buy treasuries they relute, they in the banks for example they uh, reduce the uh, special uh, leverage ratio requirements. They change those to encourage banks to buy securities, to take up that, you know, buy treasuries and uh, spend and uh, create more money. There's ways that you can require. It's it's a terrible uh, repression on savers, a terrible repression on, on uh, interest rates, but you can do this for a while. You can keep inflation high, you can force interest rates low, and gradually you can sort of, quote, pay down that debt with inflated dollars, uh, and you can make a dent, in the, if you want to put it in the debt to GDP ratio, you can make a dent in the debt to GDP ratio. There's some uh, examples in history when this has been done, like the UK, uh, you know, post-World War II and so forth. My guess is that's what they're going to have to try because they don't have any choice when, when things get, so uh, I think before things fall apart, we'll see that kind of repression.
0: Yeah, we, we talk about this kind of can that keeps getting kicked down the road. Listen, they don't, they don't have any great tools really, no. but one thing they can do, just keep kicking it down the road and there's a lot more uh, kicks in that can I think yeah. we talked about, right Keith? Yeah, yeah I, was,
2: I would say that can has a lot more good kicks left in it than, you know, than, people, um, than people think. So, Adam, now the debt to GDP one is interesting because I haven't, studied the UK, I haven't really closely studied the UK number, but I've looked at the US number quite a bit.
1: The UK's actually a little bit. It just went over 100% um, debt to GDP, and it's, it's actually not quite as high as the US.
2: But what I, what I do is I drill into marginal productivity of debt, yep. which is, okay, for each fresh, newly borrowed dollar of debt, uh, or in their case, obviously, pound sterling, how much GDP how much, do you add? How
1: much real GDP do you add? So If
2: you're actually adding more GDP than you're adding to debt, right. then that theory would be true. But when you look at marginal productivity of debt, number one, it's way, way below a dollar. Right. And number 2 it's in a secular decline since at least 1950. Right. And I say 1950 because that's the oldest data that I've been able to scrounge <laughs> on the internet. I don't know if the data exists prior to that or if it's in a it's in microfiche somewhere, probably.
1: Yeah, I don't uh, know. Hasn't
2: been put on the internet. But it's in secular decline, which means we can't actually get out of the problem by, you know, by growing our way out. In the irredeemable currency system, growth means borrowing to add to GDP. There is no other kind of growth. We've we've crowded all that out decades ago, and um, so the problem is actually intractable. I wrote an article. If you, but but, is,
1: but if you could if you could inflate if you could uh, raise you know, consumer prices, just say hypothetically, 30, 40, 50% a year for five years. And you could repress interest rates so that they were down way low. Like banana, I mean, not banana. Illegally, I mean, (laughs) shamefully You I get it, You get get it. it. You could could create so much income uh, in GDP, Now, I'm not talking about real GDP, I'm talking about nominal GDP. You could create so much nominal GDP you'd basically rob people of their wealth to pay off the debts in depreciated currency. This is what you, sure. this is what
2: I mean by repression. No, I, I get that. But my, my view is inflation is the process of borrowing more. So although each dollar is worth less, you owe exponentially more of them, you're still digging that damn hole deeper. <laughs> you're not actually uh, getting out of it. Yeah,
1: I guess my point is if you print so many dollars that you pay off the old debt at a much lower rate. It's the, I think it's theoretically possible. The, the prospect of it is very bad. Yeah,
0: scary. It's
1: very, I mean, it, it, we're, talking about, we're really talking about massive poverty here, uh, you know, because you're basically robbing savers, which isn't, which, which gets us into a segue of how, to me, is something that I find is interesting. I think we're kind of approaching this point of repression already, and I'm going to use an example. My brother, my dear brother, who's a retired school teacher, uh, he's on a fixed salary from the Texas Teachers Retirement System. He has no cost of living in, you know, increases or anything like that. He just turned 71, and he uh, has just discovered that if he keeps going, and you know, he's looking at 8%, 10 12% prices, and he lives pretty well. He owns a home in, you know, uh, in the Midwest, has a pretty good life. Uh, but he's discovered that if he lives another 20 years, he and his wife are going to end up in an apartment by the time they're 90. And so he's going back to work. Now that's not a horrible thing.
2: For those who have the ability to go back to work. He's healthy, he can go back
1: to work, and there's things that he would like to do. But he, to maintain any semblance of a lifestyle without descending into a much poorer mode of existence than he lives in right now, he has to go back to work. So he's already being financially repressed. And uh, this is, and this really made it real to me. Uh, maybe I live in a bubble. I, you know, frankly, I don't care that. I don't, it, it's not that I don't care. I don't feel it when you know beef prices go to twenty-five dollars a pound. I don't feel it that much. I notice, but I don't feel it. But lots of people do. And this is this, this is getting us back to why Jay Powell has. Got, <laughs> feels like he's got to stop this. Right. This is political poison Well, the, the, but for him and for everyone associated with it, right? Right,
0: the, the financial repression you're kind of talking about, we talk about the disenfranchising of savers, right, there's no honest way to save anymore. I mean, no, that's right. we're now getting to a point where we're approaching the zero line. I, OK, well, sorry, there is an honest way to save now. Um, but outside of monetary metals, right, um, it, it's, it's really difficult in dollars, let's put it that way, to save because not only are you looking at essentially zero interest rates, or let's talk about you know what you're really getting for your dollar, uh, it's increasing in prices from beef to food, and there's really no way to kind of say, hey listen, I've made my money, I've got this kind of yield purchasing power, and it's just in a secular decline. So, so
1: for years we've had essentially zero interest rates with low inflation, still negative interest <laughs> rates. Now <laughs> we have higher, infra- higher interest rates and higher inflation, still negative real interest rates. It's, it's, it's truly, uh, you're right. It's, I was say, it's impossible. Um,
2: in my view, the ultimate financial repression was 1933 when they said the most conservative savers who would be holding gold physically yeah. are no longer allowed to own gold, number one. Now they relegalized legalized it in 1975. In, in no small part due to the efforts of the founder of this conference, Jim Blanchard, mm. who, who deserves to have his name in the Hall of Fame as one of the good guys okay. for, for fighting to re-legalize gold. But by the time it was re-legalized, gold had been completely banished from the monetary system, obviously. Right. And if you want to hold a money balance, it's a dollar or a treasury bond or a bank balance or something like that. Right. So the saver has been disenfranchised. That is the root of financial repression. 1933. No, I think you're ultimately. right. Yes, I think you're right. And um, so I, I wrote a, an article, a pretty short one, which of all the things I've written, and some of which are extremely controversial, the, the idea that the gold price is not suppressed, extremely controversial. You mean that not
1: suppressed and manipulated by the... the by big, the bullion banks big and naked shorting yeah, and all right. that stuff,
2: right? And I've published a date. You mean the, you're
1: controversial because you're not a conspiracy theorist?
2: That's, well, in this, in this crowd I am. Um, and my name came up in a session that I wasn't in. Yes, I was there. Where, where's Keith Weiner? Right, uh, right. When they were talking about that. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, prop, perhaps one of my most controversial, if not the most controversial, and like there were places that normally syndicate and publish my stuff that refused it. And it's called The Heat Death of the Economic Universe. And so making the analogy to physics, which I sometimes like to do in my articles. The heat death of the universe, supposedly everything's expanding. If you accept the mainstream cosmology view, which I don't necessarily accept, but um, as things get more and more distant, the average density of matter and energy is decreasing and then so eventually all the stars wink out and you end up with, you know, near absolute zero and and that's the end. And um, in the um, economy, you have this problem of declining marginal productivity of debt which means we're obliged to borrow more and more to get the same uh, bang of the, of the dollar of GDP. And eventually when marginal productivity of debt turns negative, then you're borrowing more and more and you're shrinking the economy and that the thing is unsustainable and that's the point at which something goes boom. Uh, no, we're not there yet. Um, and that can have some more good kicks left in it. It's not gonna happen tomorrow morning. Um, but that ultimately this is all baked in the cake And the problem is, when you think about interest rates, you can't think about that without looking at productive enterprise. Every productive enterprise has a return on uh, assets, a return on capital invested. And the interest rate can't be above, well, the Fed can manipulate it (laughs) to be above return on (laughs) capital, of course, (laughs) but that's enormously destructive. And so the last time that happened was the 1960s and 1970s, which was a great, hollowing out. They gutted American industry yeah. by doing that um, and now if you want to hike interest rates, what firm has a return on capital that's above you know, 6% right. in a world where they've been able to borrow it at you know, 2 or 3% for a very long time. Anything that had a return on capital that high, major enterprises would have borrowed and expanded production and pulled Right there's an arbitrage between return on capital and cost of capital. And normally, that borrowing should raise the cost of capital and pull down the return on capital until you get to a a stability point. But when you have a, a Fed that's controlling interest rates, this isn't coming up. You're just simply dragging this down. There's a return on capital almost everywhere, unless you have a proprietary franchise that, you know, like an Apple or something like that, that you can get an outsized return on capital that can't be arbitraged away. We pull down return on capital after, you know, this financial repression at least to 2008, arguably a hell of a lot longer than that. Now you want to raise interest rates back here. Well, everybody's sub marginal. Right. It's not a few zombies. It's you know nobody's getting a return on capital to match, which means everybody has to delever, sell assets, shut you know reduce production. Um, well, still,
1: and yeah, still, still there are companies. Uh, Out there that get real return, that produce real wealth, and get real returns on capital, and real returns on equity, Uh, and uh, I think I don't know if they're they're not immune to the financial conditions, but they can certainly keep producing because they produce something that everyone needs and everyone wants, and it represents real wealth, and they're going to get paid for that, you know, and Suppose, something.
2: So again, leaving aside a company that has a wide moat around a proprietary business, yep. if there's something that other people could produce, and you could produce more of it too, and your cost of capital is 1.7%, and you're getting an 8% return on capital, why aren't you borrowing more to scale up your production? Oh, I, I get it. And why aren't all your competitors doing it? No, and after all these years of, of that cost of capital being that low, that has occurred. Nobody is getting that return on capital. I mean, they, they can be positive right. and they can be making money. I'm not denying that. But the return on capital has been pulled down. Now you want to skyrocket the cost of capital. Um, you, you're running into some very sort of fundamental like laws of physics limitations <laughs> right. on what the economy can really bear.
1: Right, so the, these kinds of companies, they can delever, they'll be fine. Uh, so I'm thinking of, uh, you know, uh, stocks that I have tried to own and tried to invest in, and I'm very long energy, and energy is, we've not, this, this country, probably the world, has been under investing in energy for, you know, a decade, uh, maybe not quite that long, but many years, and, uh, you know, with the sudden cutoff with the Ukraine war, these have been things that work really well, Uh, all kinds of energy. Uh, Believe it or not, the best uh, investment I've made in the last four years, five years, is in a coal partnership. I hope this doesn't go out to any of the, you know, uh, green dreamers out there. But I mean, this has been like a five bagger, Uh, and this was a company that had no uh, debt and a very good balance sheet, but was extremely low valuation because coal was considered to be dead. Coal coal was considered to be an obsolete. you know, uh, power source, at least in the USA. And um, suddenly, you know, when uh, when the uh, energy crunch hits and the Green New Deal, or the, uh, the net zero dream falls apart in Europe, uh, and uh, Joe closes the pipeline from the Columbia pipeline from uh, Canada and various things, suddenly everyone needs coal. Right and the price of coal has like quadrupled. So these are the kinds of things you can, there are investments out there where you can protect yourself against inflation.
0: Well, that's what I kind of wanted to ask you. Let, let's take a kind of long, long view, the century. What would that one asset be that you hold? Maybe a decade, which is more of a shorter view, and then for the year, as short as it comes. Obviously, we're not going to rep monetary metals, but that's always a great option. But let, let's talk about it. What, why not? I
1: mean, why not? I, let's do it. I'm an investor in monetary metals. And uh, that's one of the reasons I invested. Mm. Not just deposited a fair amount of gold there, but I'm an equity investor in monetary Mm. metals. Mm. This is a a unique, All great uh, credit to Keith. This is a unique vision, a unique opportunity. There's nothing like it. You can actually put gold back into circulation, functioning, if it's not, I haven't really thought about is are we making gold function as money? We're getting pretty close. And this is the this is the this is real this is to me this is real finance. This is not fake finance. When you can actually lend someone a commodity that they use in production and then pay you back interest in that commodity, that is about the, the, the most real the that's the most real finance that I can imagine, and that's you know what what we're doing, and I think it's a I
2: was going to say, and, and um, to your point about as returning the use of gold as as a uh, currency or as a as a money it's built money. Yeah. We have um, an increasing number of clients that are saying, "Hey, is there a way that I can spend the interest that I get?" As gold, like okay, I get. I can sell it, wire yeah. it to my bank, and then you know buy things in dollars. Yeah. Was, is there a marketplace where I can buy things in gold? In gold? because yeah. now I have a gold income. Yeah. Wow. And we're like, yeah, you know, not yet. We don't have that today, but we're going in that direction. And well,
1: we have these things, and I've met a lot of people at uh, this conference. This is just a. This isn't exactly it, but this is a, this is a gold impregnated bill. This is a Monetary Metals token, worth about $1.70, but I have a lot of these that I just bought this little Christmas. I'm going to start giving these as bar tips. I'm going to get these in circulation myself. Jim Brown has
0: started the, uh, the gold standard. Evolution. Well, Jim, I, I, we're going to end here soon, but I, I want to know where can people find your work? Obviously, we love interacting with you. Obviously, Monetary Metals loves you, but let, let's hear. Where can we kind of find some more of your work and more of your thoughts? Here? Okay. Well,
1: first, a, uh, a caution. I have a very specific interest, and it's called money creation and its consequences. Mm. So, I, I, I write about modern money creation, not about gold. I write about how banks... Uh, how we live in an era of pure credit creation. It's a corrupt system. It shouldn't be, but it shouldn't really exist, in my opinion, but it is what it is. And to me, the road back to sound money starts with understanding how the current uh, banking and money creation your, your, system works. Your, That's where it you starts. You've got to
2: understand what it is.
1: And uh, I, do I have five minutes to explain something? Absolutely. So. I saw a really interesting uh, article recently by a, a professor from Sussex University named Andrew Hook. He's an anthropologist of all things, and he took apart the uh, money creation system. He did a really nice, helpful diagram of it. It's a very good uh, uh, article. Andrew Hook is his name. It's called, uh, uh, I, I'm forgetting it. it's money, it money, money creation in the modern economy or something something like that. All right. He pointed out a uh, survey of of British, UK ministers of parliament that revealed that only 17% of the UK ministers understand that money, as we understand money, in terms of deposits, uh, which is the vast majority, bank deposits, the vast majority of the money we use, is created in the banks, by the banks. Only 17% knew that. Now these are the people who supervise the banking regulators that they appoint. They didn't know it. Now if they don't know it, who does? A couple of years ago, when I really got interested in this, I was talking to my daughter and son-in-law and uh, they just bought a house. And I said, well, isn't that interesting that 300 is set in passing. Isn't it interesting that the three hundred thousand dollars that you just got for your to buy your house never existed before the bank made the loan? They created a deposit, ex basically ex nihilo, for you, and now your house is their collateral. But they created that money. That was, and my son-in-law says, no, no. He says that was somebody else's savings. I mean, there was somebody else's money that they put into the bank. They do to do no, sorry, that is not the way it works. And I think he still thinks I'm crazy, but my my
2: my daughter believes just, me. Does it interject and say- My daughter
1: it, believes me because she it, knows I've been in the
2: finance business for 35 years. Isn't it interesting when facts become controversial? Yes. Like you're entitled to your own opinions, Absolutely. but not your own
1: facts. Absolutely, so this is the astounding thing. And, and there are many economists, many economists who,
0: get this wrong. Let's talk about it's, MMT. I mean, starting with facts and going to opinions, it's like, oh my gosh. So,
1: so, so anyway, just to get back to my plug, yeah, sorry. I, I'm just trying to get people to understand the basic facts of how money's created. And then if you, if you understand how it's created and who it goes to first, you can get an idea of what price is going to happen. You know, the old thing about the Cantillon effect, whoever gets the money first has the advantage, bids up the price. And then, you know, that's really the, the process by which uh, 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 price inflation takes root in an economy. So, money creation and its consequences are a uh, are my topic, and everything I write about r- relates back to that. Hate so, zombies. Yeah. Uh, yes. And so, money creation and the consequences of low interest rates for many years created the zombies. Most certainly. Right. So. That's just one example.
0: Well, I want to ask you one last question here. Yeah. We're at the New Orleans Investment Conference. We want to know what is some of the best investing advice you've received, and maybe you can give us some wisdom.
1: Best, uh, oh, um, wisdom, opinions. You get sure. opinions, Let's see okay? So I, I, I have learned. Um, I, I, do think uh, there's a good future in energy investment. I do think there's a, uh, will be a good future in. Uh, Commodities, uh, metals and mining, personally I am very long uh, gold mining stocks, Uh, I'm very long gold and I'm very long energy, I have a few other cats and dogs too. That's the bet I've made, so God help me if I'm wrong and uh, God help anybody if they take this as advice because this is not not investment advice. It's what what works for me and works for my family.
0: Jim, I want to say thank you so much. We've loved having you on the Gold Exchange podcast. We love having you on the board and we'll see you again soon. Likewise here, thanks. This episode was brought to you by Monetary Metals. Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the Gold Yield Marketplace, a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions and our gold financing simplified reliable financing denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold using and gold producing businesses to learn more visit www.monetary-metals.com see you next time